there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. We're broadcasting from Prelip, Macedonia, and we're going to talk this morning about what I call spotlighting. I know it's not a work term, and I'll probably take grief from this from the from the workaholics, but that's what I call it. And the reason I call it that is because that's what that's what it looks like to me. And as we work in a practical way, I think it's necessary to develop a language for the practical application of the work. We have an app, we already have a language for the intellectual application of the work, so we can apply it to ourselves intellectually. We can talk about all these concepts, we can talk about this and about that, but it's the application of the principles, the application of the ideas that I think is the most important thing. It's key. Anybody can let it go in their ear and out their mouth. Anybody can let it go in one ear and out the other ear. But to let it go in your ear, stay in there for a while, then dribble down to your heart, your emotional center, and then come out through your life, through your behavior, through your actions, through everything that you do. Then it comes back up and it, and it begins to come out through your thoughts and your feelings as well. That's the way it looks to me. If I'm wrong, well, then I'm wrong, and you should probably use good judgment and, and get beyond that. But if I'm right then you really should practice this, try to apply it, and test it out for yourself. Rather than sit there and believe me just because I said it, that's ridiculous. You need to verify all of this. One of the first principles of, this, of the fourth way is verify, verify, verify. Don't believe. Unfortunately, we believe, 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 and rarely ever verify. So, Maurice Nicole said, the average state of man is that he thinks he is what he is not, and he thinks he is not what he is. Well, there's really nothing for this like spotlighting. You don't know what spotlighting is right now, but that's what I'm going to tell you about. The other evening, uh, I think it was last Tuesday night, I had a meeting with three men in a busy cafe downtown in downtown Prelip, Macedonia. And it was very interesting. It proved that Maurice Nicole was right again. It proved that pride and vanity do indeed blind us. And then after they blinded us, they go before us and they arrange everything. They arrange all the people, they arrange all the furniture, they arrange the scenery, they arrange the library, they arrange everything so that the only thing that we can see, the only thing that we can experience is what pride and vanity have arranged for us to experience. And because we have no vision other than the vision that they give us, we have no vision whatsoever. And so that's why the work says we're blind. Now, we don't think we're blind. We actually believe that we see everything. We actually believe that no one sees as well as we do. That's why it's so difficult to accept anyone else's opinion if it differs from our opinion. We know that they're wrong because they don't agree with us. How do we know that they're wrong? Because they don't agree with us and we know we're right. Who else would we trust? There's no one in the world that we can trust as much as ourselves. Yet, it's our decisions that always get us into the same mess over and over and over again. Somehow we can't see that though. 
And when it's pointed out, then we say, well, no, not exactly. It was, I'm pretty sure it was what that person did. I'm pretty sure it was their fault. Well, if the government hadn't done this, well, you know, if I had, if I'd had better parents, I'm pretty sure I would have turned out differently. And if only this and that. So we do that. And of course, it's fruitless because it keeps us in the same place that we were before. So the work says pride and vanity, these two great monsters, put our eyes out, these giants put our eyes out, then go before us arranging everything, causing us to think we are what we are not. Spotlighting may give us a peek at ourselves. And it's just, it just takes a peek at ourselves. We just begin to get a glimpse of ourselves as, as if you were... You, I remember one time I was walking through a department store and uh, they had these pillars, you know, these, these columns in the department store, but they were square, square columns in the department store that held up the roof and like that. But they were, they were covered with mirrors. And I walked by and you don't expect to see a mirror on a, on a pillar, a supporting pillar, a column. So I just, out of the corner of my eye, I saw this slumped over man walking by and and it looked familiar for a moment, and I, I quick glanced over, and I was looking at myself in a mirror, and I was shocked because I got a, a photograph of myself that wasn't a picture of myself. It wasn't something that I made up in my imagination. It was an actual moment of clarity and awareness where I actually got to see the attitude behind the body that was walking by that mirror. This is something I think we've all experienced in one way or another. Perhaps you had your voice recorded and you didn't know it was being recorded. And then it's played back and you say, I don't sound like that. Or someone takes a candid picture of you and you look at it and say, that's not what I look like. That must have been a bad day. Oh, you caught me with my eyes closed. Well, why do always, people always have to take pictures of me with my mouth open? Well, maybe it's because your mouth is always open. In my case, that's almost always true. But the the truth is, is that we have these pictures of ourselves and when we get something that contradicts them, we have this conflict, this dilemma. And so we have to decide who's right. Is this picture right? Or is this photograph right that we've just had taken of us? Or is this picture that we've made up of ourselves, that we've cherished for years, that we've had and we've, we've polished and we've, and we've varnished and we've treated like it was really something really important and we've hung it in a place of prominence in our, in our, internally in our home and we look at it all the time and we admire ourselves. We, we don't admire ourselves openly so that other people would see our pride, but we admire ourselves and we say, yes, well, you know, I am so much better than that person over there. Well, you know, I'm so much better than I might have been or could have been and those people in jail and those people over here on, in the news and that person over there is such a horrible person and all the things they did. And so we secretly admire ourselves. This is self-love and this is what it does. But these pictures that the work talks about are all formed by and of imagination. This is the thing we don't understand. These pictures are actually made up of this substance, this material that is called imagination. This is a difficult concept for some people in the beginning because the work says that everything is material. Everything. There is nothing that is not material. Now, for a scientist... This is not a problem. The scientist would agree right off the bat. He would say, of course, everything is material. There's nothing that's not material. But for mystics and philosophers, they want to make something else, something invisible, some force that's not material. That's not the way it is. And that's not what the work says. And my experience is that everything is material. <coughs> it may be a very slight material, maybe a very fine material, maybe very subtle material, but it's still material. 
compared with something coarse and base like concrete or lead or, or wood. It may seem like it's not material at all. For example, you breathe air. You don't see it. It's much finer than whatever it is you're sitting on right now or standing on right now. It's much finer than that. In comparison, you could say, oh, it's not material at all. But the truth is, is that it is material, and you can feel it going in and out of your lungs. It does have a temperature. It does have a certain. It can have a certain smell, and, it's, and can actually have a certain taste. So you can experience air as a material thing. We know that smells are molecules. Odors are molecules that collect on in in, in the in this in our uh, in this this in our sinus cavity, like this this. Um, what is it? This collector. And they're, they're, these molecules are, are collected there. And then that vibration is transmitted to the brain. And the brain interprets it and then transmits, transmits back to the nose what it is you're smelling. And it does that so quickly that we have no idea that that's what it's doing. But it is a material thing and it's actually happening. But we may not see it that way because we're so used to seeing material things as coarse weighable, measurable things that we can hold in our hands. And so we tend to overlook the finer materials. And this is part of the problem for us. We're trying to release ourselves, free ourselves, escape from this material prison that the mind has us in. It's not just a material prison of just this physical world. It's also a material prison of our own thoughts. Thoughts are things. Thoughts have form. Thoughts have weight. Thoughts have color. Thoughts have substance. We don't see our thoughts that way, but they do. And thoughts can act on physical things because it is you thinking, I'm going to raise my finger that raises your finger. So thoughts are things and thoughts can have an effect on physical things. We just have a limit on what we think those thoughts can affect. And people who go further, people who develop into higher states of consciousness, into a higher level of being, find that their thoughts become more powerful and their physical world becomes less real, less substantial, and their thoughts become more real, and their feelings become more real, and the power that is behind them becomes more real, and so it has a more real and actual effect on the things that are starting to fade, that is the physical things. As we withdraw our attention from the, the world that we receive through the five senses and we turn inside and begin to observe what we find inside, we find that eventually, after years of proper self-observation, we find that the internal world becomes much, much, much more real than the external world. That the external world can't make us think or feel anything anymore. It can't make us do things anymore. There's a space that starts to be created so that the physical world comes into that space and we have an opportunity to look at it and to determine what we want to do with it before it touches us directly <coughs> and makes us act or makes us think or makes us feel as we have done all of our lives. But we think we're not doing that all of our lives. We think that we're fully conscious. We think that we are in control. We think that we can do and that the world is our oyster, basically. All we have to do is get the right education, marry the right person, get enough money, get the right job, get positioned properly, and then we've got everything that we want. 
And it's only when people come to the position, to the place in their lives, when that does happen, that they find out that there's still a hollow spot. There's still something missing. There's still something that doesn't satisfy. And so this is what the work would call a good householder. And it's at this point that the work can enter into you when you stop believing in life. You stop believing that life has everything that I need. All I have to do is collect it, gather it, garner it, and then I will have everything I need. Then I'll be complete. The work says, no, you're a self-developing organism. You were created to develop, and you haven't developed. What you've done is you've acquired this coding over what you're supposed to develop until it's hidden, what you're supposed to develop, your essential self. And now what you have to do is strip away those coats, that clothing, those layer, layer after layer after layer of acquired false personality, as it's called, or acquired false whatever you want to call it. These pictures are formed by imagination, and they're formed of imagination. What we begin to understand as we grasp this principle, as we start to put one thing with another properly, is that the world is populated by imaginary people. In fact, that we ourselves are imaginary people. In the work, we aim to be real and simple. Pictures block the way to that aim. Look at how difficult it is to be real and simple in this world. Look at how difficult it is to be aboriginal, to just be thirsty when you're thirsty, to be hungry when you're hungry, to cry when you're sad, to laugh when you're happy. Look at how hard it is to do that when you're in society. Look at how you are worried about what will people think if I cry now? What will people think if I'm hungry now? What will people think if, I, if I'm thirsty now? What will people think if I do this or if I do that? And so we're closed down, shut down, limited by what? By all of these pictures of ourselves as someone who has to conform, someone who has to be accepted by all of these other people, someone who has to get in line. Really sad when you think about it. So these pictures block the way to that aim of being real and simple. Remember what Gurdjieff said that I think is very beautiful. Life is real then, only when I am. Then along comes some terrible sickness or a major accident or a crisis. And that can temporarily strip us of our pictures, the pictures that we have of ourselves. And for a moment, we're more real, we're more simple. For a moment, we forget all about our bank account. For a moment, we forget all about this or we forget all about that. It's like, am I going to live or am I going to die? Is this going to happen or am I going to make it through this? Will I have another breath to breathe? Will I be able to move after this? Will I be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life? Will I die of this? In a moment like that, everything's different. All of the pictures are stripped away. Maybe not all of them, but most of them are stripped away in that moment. We begin to see ourselves as we actually are. We begin to see what's really important. This is one of the reasons that Gurdjieff wrote that thing about the final hour. And he recommended that people read it. And I don't know when the last time you read it was, but I try to read it at least once a week, once a month on the outside. And if I don't read it, I'm constantly remembering it and talking to people about it because it's all about living in the now. It's all about being real, being simple right now. Forget the past, forget the future. Live in the now. Make your decisions in the now. Eckhart Tolle has made a living doing that, talking about that, writing books about that, being in the now. Here we have some terrible sickness that comes up, temporarily strips us of our pictures of ourselves. But what happens? Well, slowly they begin to reform. They don't just go away and stay away. Slowly they begin to come back. Spotlighting can help us to dissolve some of these pictures. There's a higher level of being that we can attain through long, proper self-observation and separating 
from these imaginary pictures. Spotlighting can be used as a form of self-observation. It's like you walk into a room and you can turn on the light and maybe it's a bright light, maybe it's not so bright, but it won't get to every single area of the room. There will be shadows. There will be shadows in the room somewhere. And this is just like our lives. We can turn the light of consciousness on in our, in our, in our lives, but there still will be shadows. There was, we, we, we cast our own shadow. And so in that shadow, we hide all of these dark things that we don't want to see, that we don't want to look at, that contradict our pictures, our imaginary pictures of ourselves, of how wonderful we are, how kind we are, how generous we are, how tolerant we are, what great martyrs we are, and how we suffer other people's unpleasant manifestations without having any of our own. That's the amazing thing. And then we have all these judgments about people. Well, that person, what an idiot, and that person, what a moron, that person over there, they're bad, and this person over here, and I'm not. I'm better than those people, and they owe me something. They owe me something because I have this virtue that they don't have, and I've worked hard for this virtue, and I've earned this myself, and they haven't, and that's why those lazy slobs deserve everything they get, and I deserve to have everything good. No wonder we're unhappy. Life doesn't give us that. Life gives us what we deserve. Life gives us what our being attracts, not what our imaginary pictures of ourselves say that we should have because of who those pictures say we are. Big problem there. So spotlighting, as I said, can be used as a form of self-observation. What that really means is that you focus that light of consciousness. You focus it down to a narrow beam, just like you might with a flashlight that has a, a, a variable focus on it. You set it wide and it covers a wide area, but you twist the lens and, it's, and it somehow screws it down so that the, it becomes a sharp beam and all of that light is focused on one point and that is a spotlight. And so this is what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting spotlighting, that we can use this form of self-observation to directly shine on a specific picture of ourselves. Pictures of ourselves belong to the false personality. Now, the false personality is incapable of approaching higher, higher centers. The false personality cannot approach higher centers. And the reason it can't is because essentially it's unreal. So it would, be, it would be blasted away. It would literally be blasted away in the same way that when you, you walk into a dark room, you find the light switch, you turn the lights on, and the darkness is suddenly just blasted away. It's just gone. Where did it go? Uh, it hid in the, it's hiding in the shadows. You don't know where it went. It's scurried over here to the corner. It's over there. It's under the bed. It's under the chair. It's under the desk. But it's not there anymore. This is is the same thing. The false personality can't approach the light. The false personality cannot approach higher centers because it is false and higher centers are real. And in the presence of reality, that which is false disappears. In the presence of the truth, a lie cannot stand. It's like the emperor's new clothes. Remember that story about the emperor's new clothes and the emperor has spent all this money with these tailors and they gave him all this gold and silver and these jewels and all this stuff. These guys were crooks. They stole it all and then they convinced the emperor they were making this special suit that was so beautiful, so incredible that only the purest heart could see it. Only the most intelligent being could see it. And the emperor being proud and vain, like none of us are, the emperor being like that, he decided that he was the only one who could see this suit. So they said, oh, yes, I can see it. And the emperor, of course, being very vain, didn't want to admit that he was stupid. So he said, yes, yes, of course, I can see it too. And so the emperor went and he put on his new suit, which, of course, was nothing. 
And then he went out on a parade to show all of his kingdom this new suit. And, of course, all of the people who were in the kingdom, they all said, oh, yes, the emperor's new suit is wonderful. Oh, it's so beautiful. Oh, look at it. It's so radiant. It's so beautiful. Oh, he looks so fine. And it's because they didn't want to admit they were stupid. But there was a little child there. And as the child saw the emperor come by, he blurted out, as only a child can, look, the emperor's naked. And he started to laugh. And then other people realized the truth. And they started to laugh as well. And the emperor realized the truth. And he ran away in shame. This is our story. We turn the light on and all of these pictures begin to fade. They don't go away all at once. But under the bright spotlight of focused self-observation, they begin to fade in the same way paint fades in sunlight. In the same way, if you put a piece of red construction paper up in the window. You'll see that after a couple of days, it's not red anymore. It's now pink. And then a couple of days later, it's even softer and softer until there's almost nothing left of it. It's the same way. If we turn that bright spotlight of self-observation, focused self-observation on one particular picture, it will begin to fade and we'll begin to see through it until finally we can do away with it altogether. Said that the work prepares lower centers to receive higher centers, but not by itself. We must make regular right effort. Why is it? Why is it that we look at something the work teaches that we say, oh, well, the work prepares lower centers to receive higher centers. We go, oh, good. Well, I'll read the books then, and the work will prepare my lower centers to receive higher centers. And we sit around looking at our navels or, or practicing some meditation technique or talking about it with other people. Oh, I've read this and I've read that. And, and my lower centers are being prepared to receive higher centers. And I can feel the influences right now. And what do we get into? We get into imagination. And what happens? Well, not much of anything, really. Our lives stay the same. And we wonder, why, why, why does my life stay the same? And then we have some philosophical answer. Well, it's whatever you make it. Life is whatever you make it. Which, of course, is true. But it's not true for you. And the reason it's not true for you is because you're full of balloon juice. Because what you've done is you've filled your mind with imagination and you've sat on your butt not doing the actual work that you need to do. When that happens, you don't change your being. When your being doesn't change, your lower centers are not being prepared for the higher centers and the influence that can come from the higher centers. Without that regular right effort, nothing's going to happen. So what am I suggesting? I'm suggesting that we can spotlight certain areas. If your life problems are caused by false personality, your life will be far more complicated than it needs to be. What this means is not all problems in life are caused by the false personality. Some of them are your fate. Some of them are your karma. Some of those things you are going to have to deal with. It has nothing to do with your false personality. You're going to have to deal with them. If you deal with them with your false personality, you're going to try and solve those problems. Those problems don't need to be solved. Solution to problems is an invention of the false personality. There are no solutions to the problems of your destiny, your being, and your fate. There are no solutions. The only way to change what happens to you in life is to change your level of being. Then your level of being will attract a different life. Does that mean that different things will happen to you? Yes. Does that mean the same things will happen to you, but you take them in a different way? Yes. It means both of those things and probably a lot of other things at the same time. But right now, those two are enough for us. 
We already have our heads full of complicated ideas that we don't do much about. If your life problems are caused by false personality, then life becomes very complicated. Those problems can't be solved. Looking for solutions is a trap. That trap is set by the false personality. Why? So that you will stay ensnared in it, so that your feeling of I will be trapped inside of it, and it gets to suck your life force and live off of that while your essential self is diminished. That's what life has in store for you. The agitation of false eyes, pictures, imagination, self-pity, pride, come up when we're faced with just ordinary difficulties. Ordinary difficulties. The light turned red before you got to it, and you have to stop. How frustrating, how agonizing, how horrible. That guy ahead of you, if he had just gone a little faster like he should have done instead of lagging and lollygagging right there in the intersection, you'd have made it through that light and you wouldn't have to wait now. Mila and I were out the other day. It was yesterday, Saturday, big day downtown, big day downtown. So no parking places. Mila's driving around looking for a parking place. He sees a parking place and he drives right by it. He goes, oh, so he tries, he stops the car, gets over in the right lane. Then he tries to back up to get to that parking place. Well, of course, with all the traffic, someone else got into the parking place. Mila's agitated. Oh, they took my parking, my parking place. He owned the parking place. He saw it, therefore he owned it. So now it's his parking place. How dare that person take his parking place? Didn't they know he had his eye on it? He was backing up to get it. Then he looks across the street. There's another parking place. Someone's backing out. He tries to get across, but no, there's a car comes this way and he has to stop and he can't get out in front of the car. Then a car comes the other way and he has to stop and he can't get out in front of the car. He's going to make a U-turn and go across the street and dive into this parking place and sure enough while he sits there right before his very eyes another person steals his parking place oh he squeezes the steering wheel and he curses and i said that's great mile are you enjoying your negative emotions yes yes i am enjoying my negative emotions i said well look why don't we just let it all go and just drive around until we find the right parking place for us no problem let's do that he says we drive it couldn't have been 50 meters and there's a there's parking places everywhere it's like parking places falling off the trees and landing in front of us he parks we go and we do our business and come back everything was fine agitation of the false eyes agitation of the pictures agitation of the imagination agitation of oh the self-pity stole my parking place oh the pride how dare he how dare he that's my parking place all of these things when we're faced with just a simple easy problem like we didn't get a parking place we lack the vision that scale affords us. Well, what does that mean? It means that in scale, if we could look at all this in scale and see this parking place as what it actually is, nothing. It's nothing. It's not important. It's not a piece of, it's not even a piece of real estate. It's really nothing. And so why be agitated over nothing? Because we lack scale, we are agitated over nothing. If we can see ourselves in the big scheme of things, that stops. Spotlight where you take offense, where you are deeply hurt. I'm offended that that man has taken my parking place. Remember the three people I told you about in the cafe on Tuesday night that Maurice Nicole said he was right. I said Maurice Nicole was right again. The average state of man is that he thinks he is what he is not, and he thinks he is not what he is. These people came 
<coughs> wanted to meet with me, this person who came from America to share this teaching with people in Macedonia. And so they come all this way and hound Mile for a meeting. And so we meet them. Mile finally tricks me into a meeting, takes me to this cafe. And then he tells me when we're sitting there, oh, these people are coming. And I said, why didn't you tell me this? Well, I just wanted to get it over with. He knew what I would say, which would be, no, I don't think so. So I'm stuck there, and here come these guys. And exactly what I thought, they were geniuses. They were utter enlightened geniuses. There wasn't anything they didn't know. Their heads glowed like a thousand-watt bulb. They were so intelligent. They were so bright. They were so illuminated. And so these geniuses, these masters of the universe, sit down and they ask me, a nobody, a nothing, well, what about this and what about that? You see this and you see that, but we don't see it, so tell us about it. What stands in our way? What should we do? And I said, well, you should... You should work this long on concentration. He said, no, I shouldn't. I've worked seven years on concentration. My concentration is perfect. And I said, okay. So then what do you want from me? He said, well, I want to know what I should do. I said, well, you should try to get rid of your pride. He said, well, I don't have any pride. I said, well, okay. And he said, what should I do? And I said, well, your pride is standing in your way. He said, no, it's not. I don't have any pride. So I asked the fellow with him. I thought, well, maybe it'll help if someone else shows him that he has pride. And I said to the other guy, do you have any pride? He said, sometimes yes, sometimes no. I said, yes or no? I don't want to hear sometimes yes or no. Anything other than this is deception. He says, no. I said, you have no pride? He said, no. I said, I can see why you do it together. <coughs> Bookends. <coughs> Matching bookends. Isn't it amazing how we like to travel with people who agree with us? We like to travel with people who agree with us and never shake our world at all. So they were deeply hurt. They took offense at that, and they remained the same. I told them one more story. I told them the story about the, the Zen master, and someone from America went to the Zen master, and he said, oh, master, blah, 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 blah. And the master didn't say anything and didn't say anything and didn't say anything, as Zen masters often do. They don't say anything at all. So he just got the tea out, and he poured him a cup of tea. He poured himself a cup of tea. And then he put a cup in front of this American visitor, and he poured the tea into it. And he kept pouring and pouring and pouring until the tea ran all over the table, and the American screamed and jumped up and said, what are you doing? What are you doing? Can't you see what a mess you're making? The Zen master put the teapot down. And just looked at him. He said, what does this mean, Master? What does this mean? He said, it means that your cup is already full and I can't put anything else in it. I told them that story. Sure enough, I couldn't put anything in it. They were full and they never got it. That's what I mean by pride and vanity going before us and arranging everything, blinding us, going before us and arranging everything. Not seeing through yourself leads to unhappiness. If you don't remain, if you don't, Take offense. If you don't get deeply hurt over everything, it's because you're spotlighting these areas of your life. You've picked this certain area. This person always bothers me. These kinds of people always annoy me. Great. Spotlight those kinds of people. Spotlight them. Oh, yes, well, I have. I look at them and I say, now I know why they're so horrible. Now I know what I, why I dislike them. No. Spotlight them in connection with yourself. Why is it that you are offended by people like that? Of course, we know the work answer to that is because that is you and you are hiding that from yourself. So bring that into the light. Bring the fact that you are annoyed by that into the light and face the truth. Face the music. You are that person. But I don't feel like that person. Keep looking. Focus that spotlight beam on yourself 
and keep looking until you get a glimpse of what's actually there beyond that picture of yourself as this wonderful person who's never annoying and never like that person over there. Not seeing through yourself always leads to unhappiness. Negative emotions are always based on lies. They are never based on the truth. But notice how we justify our negative emotions by saying that they're the truth. We judge someone, we say this is a true judgment, and then we justify our own negative emotions, and we harm ourselves by taking the poison of negative emotions that leads us down to violence. Mile was washing the dishes the other morning. It was very funny. He was washing the dishes, and he was, he was going around the kitchen, clenching his fist, clenching his fist over and over and over again, highly agitated. I was watching him, kind of giggling to myself, because I don't like to giggle right out in front of him, because that makes him even angrier. So I was kind of giggling and watching him, and he, uh, he said, I hate housework. I hate this. You just keep on doing it and doing it and doing it, and five minutes later, it needs to be done again. I hate that. I hate it from my very being. I hate it from the very fiber of my being. And I said, yeah, yeah, I see that. And so he went back to washing dishes, and it got to the point where it looked like he was getting ready to break something. So I stood up, and I walked over to him, and I said, Mile, is that hot water you're using? He said, yes. I said, did you have hot water a year ago? He said, no. I said, did you have something to eat a year ago so you could dirty dishes? No. Did you have these dishes a year ago? No. Did you have a sink to wash them in a year ago? No. So, Mile, has it ever occurred to you to be grateful for what you have instead of whining about what you don't have and how horrible it is to take care of all the things that you've been blessed with? In that moment, in that very moment, he suddenly saw that whining was a subtle negative emotion. He said, I never knew that whining was a negative emotion. He says it's the most subtle of negative emotions. And here I am, my whole life is about whining, my whole life, everything I do. It's whining about this, whining about that. A picture was suddenly stripped away through spotlighting. It wasn't pleasant for him, but he held still under that sharp, focused spotlight, and he was able to see through the picture. Will it reform? Of course it will. What's the remedy for that? Stay awake. But you can't stay awake. Keep that spotlight on that picture. Remember, we can lift ourselves up by generating an attitude of gratitude. All you have to do, whatever, whatever it is you're whining about, all you have to do is look for something to be grateful for. Well, my wife is this. My husband is that. Fine. Look at what else they are. <coughs> and when you look at what else they are, see that there is something positive and begin to be grateful for that. That automatically lifts you into a higher state of consciousness. It takes right conscious effort, directed attention, in order to do this spotlighting. Don't wait around for some terrible crisis. Use these ideas on a daily basis to strip away imaginary pictures of ourselves that keep us enslaved, that keep us going around and around and around, repeating the same thing over and over again, being angry with the same neighbor over and over again, having the same argument with your husband or wife over and over again, having the same problem at work over and over again. We must eliminate this self-ignorance and learn to use the spotlight of consciousness to see through ourselves, our pictures of ourselves, as working, conscious people. Oh, I'm this conscious person. I'm working. Oh, I'm working. I'm doing so much more than all these other people. Why am I not progressing? I'm a good person. I'm a nice person who always tries to do the right thing. These pictures have to be stripped away. They have to be stripped away. There's no other way for us to change and develop. Spotlight what you can take and what you can't take. What that means is, look at the things you can take in life. Well, I can take somebody yelling at me, where someone else can't take it at all. The other day, Sashka got upset, and she yelled at me, James, that's inappropriate. You can't do that. You can't talk about that. Everybody got quiet in the room. And I said, okay, 
so you don't like that? She said, no, I don't like that. That's wrong. I said, okay. Is there anything else you want to say about that? And she growled a little bit. And I said, okay, well, thank you for sharing. No problem for me. I can take that. I realized that that's her looking at herself, not seeing herself, and projecting it onto me. Okay, no problem for me. So what if everything she said about me was true? So then it's true. Nothing I can do about it. I can't do. I'm not going to be able to change myself instantaneously. I'm a machine just like every other machine around here. If I have a moment of awareness, in that moment of awareness, I'll work on that. If I don't have a moment of awareness, why fret over it? Why worry myself over it? Why add negative emotions to negative emotions? This is really what the work teaches. Observe yourself as if you were looking at an interesting stranger. Separate. Don't identify. But when you do that, people say, oh, you're callous. You don't care. You can't care what people think about what you're doing, about your work. This is one of the reasons the work says, keep it to yourself. Don't tell other people about it. If you do that, you'll begin to see where your being ends. You'll see where you can no longer control yourself, where you snap. Millet's point was washing the dishes, doing the housework. His daughter, Sarah, running around, and as soon as he picks up all the toys up and puts them in the toy box, she, five minutes later, has them spread out all over the room as if five monkeys were in there throwing things all at once. And it's one little 16, 17-month-old child doing all this. It's constant. She just runs here and there, grabbing things, throwing things around. And they run around after her, picking them up, putting them back. And she runs around. It's a big game for her. Trying to get them to see that they're playing this game with her, that basically teaching her to do this has been a real joy for me. How can you say that? We love our daughter. We are only doing what's good for her. And say, yeah, this is really good for her. How's it working for you? Our pictures of ourselves are a strong influence preventing us from developing. As long as you picture yourself as this loving parent who's doing all this stuff for your child, you're never going to see that you're training the child to be this idiot child who's a big pain in the butt. A pain in your butt and a pain in everybody else's butt. Thank God she'll be out of the house someday. She'll be married. She'll be a pain in some other man's butt. And you won't have to worry about that anymore. Then you can just, uh, then you can, when their grandchildren, when your grandchildren come around, you can spoil them and send them back home with them so that they can torment them the way your children tormented you. And every grandparent looks forward to that. <coughs> After 9-11, do you remember how many pictures vanished when all of the Americans began to behave towards one another in the right way? When they began to be kind to one another, people were more friendly to one another. It was amazing. Everybody was in this great state of, oh, isn't it wonderful that we're alive? Oh, isn't it wonderful that we're all together in this, that we pull together against this great tragedy? Oh, and all these people died and this horrible thing happened, but we're still strong and we're still standing together and we're a family now. And everybody liked each other for a while, but slowly the pictures came back. See, that great tragedy stripped away a lot of pictures, a lot of pictures of our invulnerability, a lot of pictures of our, our ability to live forever, a lot of pictures of nothing can happen to us. We're Americans. A lot of pictures of we have never been attacked on our own soil, blah, 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 blah. All those pictures were stripped away in an instant as people watched with their jaws open as the twin towers came down, as planes were flown into them as explosions and ash and dust covered everything, as people jumped out of windows trying to get out of it. The horror of it stripped away a lot of our pictures. But the pictures gradually reformed and re replaced the kindness as we lost sight of ourselves without the pictures, proving the crisis is not enough. If we can remember afterwards what we saw in the crisis, 
not forgetting it when things smooth out, when the crisis is gone. Then we can develop consciousness, the consciousness necessary for the development of being. Remaining unconscious of oneself cannot raise your being. You cannot develop mechanically. It's not going to happen that way. It has to be done consciously. It's difficult to observe anything belonging to imagination. Why is that? Well, because imagination controls us. We can't observe it directly because when we try to, it stops. It's just like a rabbit. Have you ever noticed that if you, you see a rabbit, then it'll be on the move, but then it sees you and it freezes, it stops. And that is its camouflage. That is its first defense. It stops. And you could almost walk right up to it, right up until you think it, you think you could almost pick it up. Then when the rabbit sees that it's been found out, then it runs. Then it uses its second defense, which is zigzagging in speed. It runs in a broken pattern and tries to get away from whatever is going to get it. And this is the same thing with us. We can't observe imagination directly because it stops. We can observe pictures in retrospect. The pictures are blind to everything that's not in the picture. It's like a painting or a photograph. If you take a frame and put it over a painting, you can, if you take a small frame over a big picture, you can just look at little pieces, like running a magnifying glass over a, over a photograph. You can only look at small parts of it at a time. What we want to do is we want to observe these pictures from stepping back from them and separating from them more and more so that we're not myopic about it. We're not right on top of it. We start to back away and spotlight it. You can only see what's in the picture, nothing outside the frame. But if you stand back, you begin to see more. Pictures reveal themselves in what we say. They reveal themselves in the intonations of our voice. They reveal themselves in our movements, in our attitudes, the attitudes that we take, and in our feeling of ourselves. We see them easily in others, but we hardly ever see them in ourselves. <coughs> I can look at Mele almost any moment <coughs> and see what attitude he's in. It's a lot more difficult to look at myself and see the attitude that I'm in. I have to be walking by a mirror and catch a glimpse of myself and go, oh, well, I didn't know I was in that attitude. Every picture is connected to some fantasy about ourselves. If you're foolish enough to try to point one out to another person, you're going to run the risk of being harsh and insensitive. When you point out someone else's pictures, their contradictions, you're messing in an area where you could get bit. And they don't like that. People don't like that. And they will fight that because they don't see it. Not because they're argumentative necessarily, but because they don't see it. And if they can't see it, then you're just wasting your time. Unless, of course, they have a commitment to work. Unless, of course, they're sincere and genuine. Then maybe, if you've developed a relationship with them, maybe they will be able to hear you. Maybe they will be able to spotlight that picture and see if they can get a glimpse of it. We've lost our ordinary feeling of I because it has become stuck in false personality, like an arrow that's been stuck deeply in a tree. And we rightly feel lost. And if you've ever worked with a bow and an arrow and, and, and had an arrow and fire an arrow and it's stuck in a stump... I've seen people pull and break the shaft or pull and leave the head of the arrow in the tree and only pull the shaft out. And it's because these pictures are so deeply sunk into our false personality, into our consciousness, that trying to pull them out directly will just leave them stuck in there or frustrate us or break them off so that it's even more difficult to get them out. Because we've, we've, 
we rightly feel lost. We rightly feel lost. That feeling of being lost is a sign that the work has begun to give you something, something you can hold on to during tough times, like whatever tough time you're going through at the moment. This work is about change of being. You can't change your being unless you change. You can't progress in this work surrounded by hundreds of pictures about yourself that were forged in imagination. That's just not going to happen. Those are like those arrows stuck deeply in a tree. They have to be removed. The problem is, is they can't be removed by force. They have to be removed by the spotlight of consciousness. Gradually, the work will spotlight these pictures so that you begin to see through them if you sincerely wish it. Your being will change. It can't remain the same in the spotlight. As the pictures fade, negative emotions will fade with them since they come from the false personality and its imaginary pictures. Your negative emotions all come from these imaginary pictures you have of yourself. You're not offended because someone tells you the truth. You're offended because someone has offended your self-love and your picture of yourself. If it is the truth, then there's no reason to be offended. If it's not the truth, then there's no reason to be offended. But when you're defending a picture of yourself, you're defending imagination. And because it's not real, you defend it tooth and nail. Finally, let the work spotlight and trust that it will bring you through to something more real. There is a certain amount of trust involved in this. You must trust that there is something higher that you can reach. You must trust enough to raise your chin and look up and see that there is a rope hanging just above you, that you must make the effort to jump for that rope, to get hold of it, and to begin to slowly, hand over hand, pull yourself up. As you reach the third state of consciousness, you will receive the help that you need. The work will work in you. The light of consciousness spreads as it's shared. As you give it from one eye to another eye inside of yourself, you will begin to see it spread. Your understanding will grow, your consciousness will expand, and your level of being will be raised. This is what this work is about. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application, in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.